I'm Brian Vickers. You may know that from the bulletin. Bulletin, that's not, I'm not a church. From the uh, catalog. All right, there you go. Catalog. This Sunday I'll probably say open your catalog. Um, just a little bit of background on me. I think it's maybe in the description. I teach at a seminary right down the road that way uh, called Southern Seminary. This is my 12th year at GMHC, and um, I typically speak on things like uh, the biblical story of missions, which I'm doing tomorrow, and um, the missionary calling, which I'm also doing tomorrow. And then this year, I've got a new topic, um, which I was telling my wife the other day. I was just telling Tammy here. My wife asked me, because it's, it's, it's new, and not brand new to me, but for GMHC, and I said, well, the thing is, is I'm speaking Thursday evening, Thursday afternoon, and nobody's there, nobody's even there yet, and then I'm speaking Saturday, so Thursday will be like a tune-up with just like a handful of people, I'll get all the kinks worked out, and then I'll be ready to go with the actual talk on Saturday, but you all have completely ruined that plan for me, um, so I'm going to have to be ready to go here in a second. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, as I get started, you know, I'm not a super argumentative person, but one thing I've noticed is this is one of, I keep pointing, yeah, it's there. This is one of those topics that sparks arguments among Christians about that fast, sometimes. And one of the most heated arguments I ever was in, and I didn't intend to be, was over this topic. And the reason was, was because at the time I worked for a Christian charity uh, in the north of England called Caring for Life, which basically started in a guy's living room inviting, he had some women who worked in his church, That's, they were at his church and they worked in British social services, and they were simply telling him about their experience there and some of the, some of the young men and women that they were under, the, under their care. And as she started to tell him, he was a pastor at a church, there in Leeds, and as she started to tell him about you know her experience, they about their experience at, at British Social Services, he said, "So these young people, they've never done something like sat down and had Sunday lunch." She said, "No, never." He said, "Okay, invite some next week." And they came and had lunch with him. I think there was five or six. Fast forward, roughly. Uh, 20 years later, and I'm working there, and that charity is now two residential homes, a residential home in Romania, and a full-on working farm where people can come and work every day, and they have a home for life if they want to stay there. And it just started because a guy said, invite us, just have them over for lunch, right? So he didn't sort of start with, here's a list of statistics. I'm going to put some statistics up here in a minute, simply because you have to if you speak on something like this. Um, he didn't start with statistics. He didn't start with, like, what are they doing? He didn't start with this discussion of, well, what are Christians doing or, like, arguments about uh, what do we do? And so, anyway, I was traveling with him, and we were giving a presentation on the charity. And the next day I was talking to someone, and he came up and said, so hold on, let me get this straight. You all offer... A home for life for people who, who want it. You feed them. You clothe them. Um, I mean, there's rules, right? I won't get into it. And you give them a job. But you don't make them go to church on Sunday. 
And I said, no, we, we don't. He said, you don't think it's important for them to hear the gospel? I mean, it's a little bit of a loaded question, right? What am I going to say? No, I don't think it is. And I said, no, of course it is. And they hear the gospel all the time from us. But the thing is, is there are no strings. It's not, it's not like those sort of soup kitchens, right, where somebody's hungry and they're sitting there and you have soup. And you say, soup? And they say, yes. You say, well, hang on, I want you to sit down for 45 minutes while you're hungry. And I'm going to speak to you first. That's sort of your payment for the soup. Right? So this guy and I got really into it. And it, it didn't, it just ended the way it started. Nobody, nobody won. I, didn't, I wasn't even really trying to talk about it. But I've noticed over the years that people get sort of from here up to here immediately. But one of the things I noticed over time was everybody gets really animated, but it's always animated over the question, what should we do? Or what should we be doing? But in one way, don't hear me wrong, in one way, that's it's not really a question in a way. We should be doing whatever we can. It's not as though there's just one thing to do. And every Christian, if I ask you, I, I, I would like to know, really, don't answer. <laughs> right? I would like to know, like, when you saw Theology of Poverty, what did you even think was going to happen when you came here? I, I, you don't have to answer out loud. But I bet there's any number of things that you thought. Well, I can tell you what's not going to happen. I'm not going to give you, here's ten things you need to go do. I'm not. And hopefully I won't really have to. Because there's not ten things you need to go do. There's any number of things you need to go do based on how many people are in here and what they're able to do and whether and big, the big question, whether they'll just do it. Whether we should do something... Unfortunately we, we, unfortunately, we do have to too often talk about whether we should do something. But I'm not going to try to make an argument here today, this evening, whatever it is, about whether we should be doing something. Right? I'm not interested in that. I mean, I'll talk to you about it afterwards if you want to. But I'm not going to convince you. I'm not going to come here and try to convince you that as Christians living in this world, we should be concerned about and trying to alleviate and addressing the issue of poverty. Um, I think it's not hard to make that argument. Now, one of the more difficult things, though, is to say, as a Christian, why should we? Why should we? Why should we be concerned about the poor or about poverty? Well, any number of things. Somebody might say, and and I'm, I'm typically on this question, I'm happy with whatever answer I get, almost. If somebody says... Well, Jesus helped the poor. I want to help the poor. Okay. Okay. And if they say, well, the Bible tells me to. I think, well, okay. I'm going to pass that through a grid or two and say, okay. Or if they say, well, everybody's made in the image of God and they deserve, they deserve to be, you know, they, they deserve to be helped or they deserve to be assisted or they deserve our attention. Good answer, too. And so we have all these sort of general things, but one of the things I think we don't sometimes address is just, what does the Bible even have to say about poverty? And how should we think about it, not just in terms of it. That's the other big problem we have, is we think of poverty as sort of like an it. That is, 
only defined as if you happen to dip down below a certain level of income, right? Which, of course, we all know is false anyway, because you can be above that level of income, and because you're just slightly above it, you're not, you're not, you, now you're not, um, you're, now you're not, you're not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This is off to a good start. I've already can't, I already can't think of a word. Some of you are irritated at me. I can see it in your face. But don't worry. I teach graduate students. I'm used to people frowning at me for hours on end every day. So you, you can't really hurt me in that way. You can frown all the whole time. I'll keep around smiling. You're not eligible. All that talk was just me killing time for the word to come. If you, you know, so we all know, right, you're not really at the poverty line uh, because whatever main income earner gets a little above it. But now you're not eligible for, you know, whatever you might be eligible for under it. And so, practically speaking, by the time the year's over, those people are well below it. So it can't just be some imaginary line in the sand that the government draws. But too often, that's kind of what we do. We think of it in the same way the government does. Right? And I'm not here to be, like, I'm not, I'm I'm not going to pretend to have sort of no political views or social views or anything like that. But as Christians, sometimes we just say the same things that anybody could say. But again... When it comes to this issue, I'm kind of happy if we're just saying and doing anything. And I don't sometimes sort of scratch the surface to see what's below it. But we should. Because the Bible, and then the New Testament in particular, has a way of talking about the poor and poverty and a whole bunch of other connected things that basically does this. Whatever we consider naturally to be great or successful or worthwhile, um, in terms of how we measure if it's great, you know, uh, whether it's significant, what kind of people are significant, who's deserving of our attention. The Bible takes almost everything we think about that and turns it upside down. And actually what it does is, it turns us right side up. And how we think about poverty and the poor is hardwired to that. Because really, what I want to talk to you about tonight is today is going to be poverty, and we're going to we're going to look at a whole bunch of things. But then I want us to focus really on what is poverty, or what should poverty? How should we think about poverty, or the poor, or being poor in relation to the kingdom of God, and what is the kingdom of God, and does it actually even matter? And do we actually think and act and speak as people who are part of that kingdom, or we just think and act and speak as just people? that it's really no different than anything else. And that's kind of what we're going to do. So, starting off, you know why I'm using stats? Because everybody does when they talk about things like this. I think these are important. Um, but you know what kind of frustrates me? Is when Christians get together and talk about poverty and only talk about stats. The reason that frustrates me is not because it's a bad thing to do, but we usually just stop at that, and then somebody says, we have to do something. Everybody kind of amends it. And then there's a committee, maybe, and then maybe we have some sort of uh, outreach or something. It's great. I'm not against it. I'm on board. You, basically, anything you're doing tonight, I'm probably going to affirm. So I'm not here to take anything away. I just hopefully maybe add, right? But a lot of times, though, we'll just see stats, and they're devastating stats, and we think about them, and we think, well, we need to do something. But we also think about in terms of they need to do something. 
right? We have a way of sort of depersonalizing poverty immediately. So it's really something, you know, the, and then here's the big one. The church needs to be doing something. And then we get super irritated at the church, whatever we mean by that. And we don't usually mean maybe our local church. We just mean the church. They need to be doing something. As though we're not part of the church. And so, again, all we do, if we just sound like some politician or something talking about, like, the war on poverty, that, you know, if it, if it does something for people, I'm on board. But as Christians, we can't just stop there. We can't just get upset at stats and then, uh, and then develop some sort of outreach thing or whatever it is you're doing. Keep doing it. And then think, oh, we did it. Right? You know, we had that thing last year. Or, you know, once a year I'm involved in my church outreach in a prison ministry or whatever it is. Or, you know, in the inner city or we're, we're, we're providing like a, a clinic or something once a year. That's what I did. And that's, that's fine. But a lot of people can do that. Why do we do it? That's the question. And I think if we can really tap into... Oh, here's some more stats for you. What's that? Uh-oh. My computer's not working. This is not good. Talk among yourselves for a minute. And don't, I don't mind awkward silences, but we're getting ready to have one. Yeah, it's not, just, it's not, um, it's not going forward. I'm going to have to close it and try again. I can do it without it. There was a day when people would speak and they didn't have something like this. Now if you do it, people are like revolting against you for not having PowerPoint. Right? So this will be shut. If this doesn't work one time, I'm, I'm going to give up. Because I don't want to mess around with this and have this hold us back. All right, so here's some, here's some more stats, right? All children. Um, this is, these are American stats, 16%. That's a really, that's not a really very accurate number. Married couples, adults, you see what it is, right? We see these sort of stats all the time. Children in the U.S., 2018, 16.2% of all children. That's 11.9 million kids. Lived in uh, poverty in the U.S. It's almost one in every six. 2015, National Center on Family. Analyzed us, uh, 2.5 million children experience poverty. Here's another thing. Whoops. There it is. Globally, 9.9% of the world is living on less than $2 a day. A third of the entire urban population in the world is living in what is uh, usually like registered. There's a sort of a World Health, a, a world health Organization uh, definition of what constitutes a slum. Um, in sub-Saharan Africa, 41% of the population living less than $1.90. Now, the reason I put this slide up is this is the kind of slide that makes us feel good. Right? So we have all these horrible slides. Then we see something like this. About a third of the UN's least developed countries are also the least church. Now, I don't mean it makes us feel good. What I mean is that we look at that and think we must be doing our job. At least we're doing our job. Because in church places, poverty is less. Or one of those stats that tells you, and it's true, that in the U.S., typically speaking, year in, year out, um, kind of generally evangelical, middle-class people tend to give more towards charity and, and towards actually real things that help 
and alleviate poverty than any other sort of group, um, richer, richer below. And we look at that and think, oh, we're doing all right. We're the ones who really do the work. We, I mean, we do. So all of a sudden we all identify as a group of people who are really concerned about poverty because we maybe view ourselves as part of that larger group. And then maybe even argue, if you argue with somebody who's maybe not uh, sort of your theological stripe, you're like, you know, we do more for the poor than any other group. That's what happens. But who's we? What matters is, really, for each of us, is not what we do. What matters for each of us is, what do I do? Not just what do we do as a group. What do I do? And the good news is, you can do anything you want. There's not just like one thing you can do. The question is, is why do we do it and what motivates us? Well, one of the things I think that we need to do is think, just generally speaking, what does the Bible have to say about poverty? You know what? Oops, that's, that's not right. If this thing keeps giving me problems, I'm quitting. No, not quitting the whole thing. Just the slideshow. <laughs> I'll keep talking. Don't worry. I need very little to keep me talking. Well, the, part, the thing is, is in the Bible, the Bible has lots of different things to say. I think this will be made available on the GMHC website, so you don't have to try to scribble it all down. There's way too many Bible verses coming up for you to write down. But it has a lot to say. And it can be the way we typically think of poverty, and that is socioeconomic. Right? So, you know, Exodus, uh, if you lend silver on my people to the poor, just, you know, socioeconomically poor, you must not be like a creditor. You must not charge him interest. Psalm, Psalm 12.5, Psalm 12, because of the devastation of the needy and the groaning of the poor, in this particular psalm, it is actually talking about uh, the oppression of people at a low socioeconomic level. Um, the Lord brings this charge as Isaiah, right? So if you think about it here, this spans the globe, right? So you got Exodus really early, uh, Psalm 12, sort of midway, Isaiah, a little, a lot further along, almost sort of up towards the time of the exile. Um, the Lord brings this charge against you, elders and leaders of His people. You have devastated the vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses, right? Socioeconomically poor, but that's not it. Poor doesn't just include people that are socioeconomically financially poor, but can be implied to include people sort of on the fringes of society in any sort of way. So it's not just, I mean, in other words, they're not necessarily financially poor. They don't have to be, but the Bible might refer to them as the poor. So, for I rescued the poor who cried out for help. This is not just the financially poor, but those who couldn't help themselves for whatever reason. And this could be multiple reasons. And the fatherless child, so orphans, the fatherless child who had no one to support him. This is sort of, then Luke 14. This is Jesus telling the story. A servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master said, go out quickly to the streets and alleys of the city and bring here the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. It's not just finance um, and then sort of injured or with disabilities or who are just blind. Uh, it's not just that. In other words, you go out and you bring in all the outsiders. All the people who can't help themselves. In other words, go out and bring in the people who are not A-listers. Absolutely, not A-listers. And that's important to keep in mind as we, as we move forward. 
And then James, of course, says, everybody knows this verse, pure and undefiled religion uh, before God, the Father, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep themselves unstained from the world. Right? So, the word poor doesn't have to be used when the Bible is speaking of poor, because poor in the Bible is not as simple as low socioeconomic status. Though it is that too. You get to keep both of those. You don't have to reject either one of them. And then here's, this is related. The poor can also just refer to you and me. Now, and this doesn't. Now, I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to spiritualize the, oh, I just used air quotes. I'm going to be filled with self-loathing the rest of the day for that. Um, so I'm going to keep my hands right here in case I do that again. I, I don't know why, I just can't stand when I do it. Um, and then I'll always say something out loud and make it awkward. Okay, so anyway. But as for me, poor and in pain, let your salvation protect me. Now, I'm not going to spiritualize poverty like the way some people do. We do have this tendency uh, as Christians to either make poverty a socioeconomic thing or only a spiritual thing. But it's not an either-or. But we love either-ors. We like a good binary choice. And if we can just make poverty only spiritual, well, we could be helping the poor all the time. All the time. Every day. Every single day. If we can make it not have anything to do with any sort of socioeconomic or cultural or background of any kind, and there's all kinds of things we could put there, right? Then we're all helping the poor. If we can just spiritualize it. However, it does also have a spiritual meaning. You've got both. And one of the things we need to do as Christians is stop this nonsense of looking at it as either or. In fact, I would say this. To understand a theology of, a biblical theology of poverty, we've got to keep those two things hand in hand. And also remember how we in this room fit in it. And I'm, I don't think I'm going on a limb to say that there's probably not many people in this room who socioeconomically are below the poverty line. I mean, I'm not. And maybe some of you are, but I bet a lot of you aren't. So, it can be sort of used like a, like a figure of speech almost. Now, I'm going to get through these pretty quick. Well, you know. Poor can also be oppressed, right? So, Psalm 18, for you rescue the oppressed people, but the humble, so the word humble, uh, but, the, but you humble those with proud eyes. So, it's sort of the, the poor, as in the humble, over against the proud. Or, God opposed, this is well known, right? Because Peter quotes it, James quotes it, it's from Proverbs. God opposes, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is in the Old Testament, the same word that was often used for poor or poverty. Or for the poor in that case. Now, the word poor can also be used as a description of those who are, <coughs> those who are saved by God. So this is Isaiah 29. I know I'm in the way for some of you. Isn't it true that in just a little while, Lebanon will become like an orchard, and the orchard will seem like a forest? On that day, the deaf will hear the words of the document, and out of the deep darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The humble have joy after joy in the Lord, and the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So this is sort of like an either-or. But it's not just saying a day is going to come when... These people only are going to be saved. It turns out to be 
Absolutely. Does it refer to people who fit these exact categories? Yes. And another, again, again, not the sort of for A-lister people you would think, but it has a broader, I like to say thicker, meaning of including all those who are saved by God. As a description of all who are saved by God. So you get both. Again, again, I'm not ruling one out. Keeping them together, because I think that's what the Bible does. And I think we're going to see that really pretty clearly soon. Now, the Bible also has a practical vision of God's people actively working to help the poor. Right? So that we've seen the Bible uses poor and po- concepts like poverty or the word poor in lots of different ways. There's no denying it. It doesn't just have one way. Uh, and, they're, and they're connected. But the Bible also teaches our responsibility to have an active, practical help for people, to actively help people. So Deuteronomy 15, if there is a poor person among you, poor person here is not like spiritually poor, it's poor. One of your brothers within any of your city gates in the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Instead, you're to open your hand to him Freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Be careful that there isn't this wicked thought in your heart. The seventh year, the year of counseling debts is near, and you are stingy toward your poor brother and give him nothing. Now, what that means is this. So in Israel, though they didn't, in ancient Israel, they didn't really celebrate it the way they should. Every seven years there was something called the Jubilee year. And so what, and where debts were forgiven, technically, supposedly, uh, what actually happened, totally different story. Um, what he's saying here is, and by the way, don't think, well, yeah, you know, in seven years, Jubilee, I'm not going to be tight-fisted then. I'm not going to be stingy then. I'm going to do my thing, and then we're good to go. So he's like, you know, don't bank on the fact that if you just wait seven years, you have to help the poor. Right? So sort of cutting off the, the sort of tendency, I think we can all sort of relate to that a little bit. Right? So he's just sort of cutting off. And by the way, don't think when you're forced to help the poor, and then you do it, that you're okay. In other words, it's more of a what? It's a daily habit. It's not just a seven-year celebration. Give to him and don't be stingy, right? And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. We're going to talk about this word bless a lot soon. As in, blessed are the poor and whatever that means. I'm going to tell you what I think it means. Then look at this though. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I'm commanding you, open your hand willingly to your poor and needy brother in your land. So, there's a vision of helping people, but there's also a vision of what? Of poverty being a reality that you they're not just going to fix by like a one-time thing. They're not just going to come up with sort of one program. Like even, even a seven-year jubilee... Um, forgiveness of debts. It wasn't forgiveness of all debts, by the way. I don't want to get into what it was. Even that's not going to fix it. So the vision isn't sort of we're going to have a war on poverty in Israel and we're going to stomp it out. What it is is what? Individual Israelites, the people of God, are going to do what? They're going to be generous. They're going to help not just them, not just programs. They're going to help their brother or sister in need. Perpetually, constantly, always. Why? Because they're the people of God. 
And that gets us a little bit closer to where we're going. I'm not. This is another one, right? Um, where it's again, it's this sort of social responsibility, public responsibility. Same thing here. You see it. You see it in Galatians in the New Testament. Paul and Peter uh, and James, Cephas. That means Peter. Uh, Paul's talking when he meets with them in Galatia, or I'm sorry, in Jerusalem. This is from Galatians. Uh, they all agree they have different work to do, but the one thing they all agree on is that each of them would remember the poor. Now, these are, it's harder to rise above James and Peter and John and Paul in terms of what Christians do. And so they're all agreed. They're all agreed what? They're all agreed that their job, so James and Peter are going to the, to the, to speak to the Jews. Paul's going to the Gentiles. They all have this missionary focus, right? They're the first missionaries. They're going out, but they're not just going out like on this spiritual trek. They're also going to rem- remember the poor at every point. And Paul says, which I had made every effort to do. It was part and parcel of them going out to preach the gospel. It wasn't an add-on. It wasn't a, go preach the gospel, and by the way, if you get an extra minute or two, try to help some folks out. But if you don't, you did the important thing. The second thing, like icing on the cake. But if you don't do it, you still got cake. That wasn't the, that wasn't the plan. Now, helping the poor is a sign of faithfulness to God. I don't have to read all these to you, but this is the, this is the idea that in the Bible, helping the poor is seen as a direct act of faithfulness to God. Not simply to the people you're helping, but first and foremost, faithfulness to the God who saved you. Right? So, all these texts that we've seen from the Old Testament, remember, everything that they're commanded to do is prefaced by this word. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, every single thing they're told to do, they are also reminded, at one point, you were helpless, poor, and slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out of of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, that's a figure that God likes to use a lot, and brought you into here, therefore, and then all the commands. So in other words, all the commands in the Old Testament, New Testament 2, in the Old Testament, are always prefaced by this, a reminder to the people that they are the people of God who themselves were helpless and poor and without a home and without an advocate and without hope and without a future. And God freely, what? Saved them and brought them into the land. And I'm telling you, if you go look for yourselves, if you go look for yourselves, you'll see that throughout the Old Testament, in the law, they are constantly reminded. It's never that, like, hey, here's some new laws I got for you. It's not like Moses showed up every day. He's like, hey, here's 14 more. You know the 10? We've added 14. Right? You know the 24? We've now added. Now we have 49. When they're presented with it, they are told over and over and over again, by God, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. That is the foundation for every single thing they do. It's not just go out and help some folks. It is remember who you are and remember that you yourselves, everything you have, you've received as a gift. And not because you worked hard. 
And so, by implication, it becomes not a question of, well, if those people would just sort of work harder, they would be doing better. Because everybody's reminded, you know why you're here in this land? Zero to do with what you did. Zero to do with you working your way here. Zero to do with you working your way up. Zero to do with you breaking out of Egypt, getting across that water, working your way across the desert, and then showing up here. Nothing to do. In fact, God tells them over and over again, in fact, not only did you not do it, you were also like, really super stubborn. And then he reminds them again, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. So, every act that they're to do, including every act they're to do for the poor in the land, is prefaced with this idea that they themselves are poor. And if they have anything, it's because God gave it to them. So, if you think about it that way, everything they have is a gift. Let's move on. So, what about Jesus? You've been waiting patiently. Here's a well-known text from Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes in. It's it's one of the most dramatic scenes in all the Gospels. Jesus comes in a synagogue in Nazareth, this hometown. And he walks in, and they're waiting for him to read. This is what happens. That happened then. Still happens in synagogues. Jesus comes in. They hand him the scroll. And everybody is quiet. They're waiting for him. It's very dramatic. It is very dramatic. And then he says something that makes everybody go bananas. I mean, they freak out on him to the extreme. In fact, they try to drag him out of the city and throw him off a cliff over what he's getting ready to say. That is... You know the story. So Jesus, so he's sitting there. Imagine it. Here's this guy, this carpenter son. Right? He's not, he's not a scribe. He's not royalty. He's just like down the road from the carpenter shop. And here he is. He's been doing all this miraculous stuff, saying all kinds of things that make sense but yet don't. Because he's saying weird stuff like, Servants are great. When was the last time you had a kingdom where the servants were great? When did that happen? You know when? Never. That's when. And so he comes in, and he comes in, and he sits down, and they give him the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. That's, that, that's an echo of that jubilee year that I was talking about before. And recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, we look at this, and again, we have to take a thick reading of this. And we can't just spiritualize it. That's the thing that, maybe you're thinking, why does he keep emphasizing that? I guess I do because I see it a lot. In sort of the particular places I tend to find myself a lot. Where, um, and that's not a shot at anybody I work with, by the way. That's not a commentary. This is being recorded. It's not a commentary on the seminary I work for or the people I work for. I'm just talking about in general, in my life. I do tend to hear a lot, a lot of emphasis on how we are spiritually poor and we are spiritually blind uh, and spiritually oppressed. And you know what? That's right. But you know what else? That's not all there is to it. Again, we come to these texts, and basically, you know what it is usually? 
depending on our background, we just choose, is this spiritual or is this just actual and literal? That's what we do. We're kind of already programmed to make a choice. But you know what? Jesus isn't making, isn't asking us to make a choice. Because what is he talking about? He is quite literally preaching good news to all, as a scholar called N.T. Wright puts it, he is preaching the good news to all the wrong people, and it is really irritating all the right people. Because he is reaching out to everybody who's on the fringe. Right? He is reaching out to nobody who's influential, all these people who are not influential, all these people who are uh, injured, some of them some of them can't even go to the temple because they're like constantly unclean and you're not even supposed to touch them. And Jesus has dinner with them. And he's doing these things all the time. But let's not go overboard and forget that Jesus also freely heals the daughter of a rich man. And that Jesus has dinner with the well-to-do as well. And that he preaches to people not based on their socioeconomic status, but their socioeconomic status does also doesn't keep him from ministering to them. So again, the big news here today is we can't sort of separate all these things. But we have to make sure that we avoid just making all these spiritual realities. Because there's spiritual realities for 100% of humanity. Rich or poor. Right? No matter who you are. So that's unavoidable. So that is right. So if you look at these things and say, well, it's not just, you know, it's not just the blind blind, but it's those who are unable to see. Unable to see God. Don't know God. Right? It's not just the oppressed. It's those who are oppressed by, like, say, Matthew 23, where Jesus, uh, it's also in Luke 14, where Jesus says, hey, you Pharisees, you are oppressing the poor. You're heaping laws on them, and you yourselves don't even lift a finger to help them. Right? That's sort of, the, that's the oppression a lot of the people Jesus is speaking to were under, but it's not just for them. Jesus, frankly, is speaking to everyone. And there is no way we can look at this and make it either one or the other. Now, the reason that's good news is because that kind of starts answering this question we all have is, should we or shouldn't we? The answer is yes. We help. So what, what is starting to develop is this idea of our responsibility is to help and love all people according to what? According to their need, according to our ability, according to our time, according to whatever gifts and we have without sort of thinking, should I be doing this or not as a Christian? Or am I going to fall into the trap of social gospel? Right? Honestly, I'm not super worried about most evangelicals falling into the trap of social gospel. (laughs) Can it happen? Yes. Am I super, super worried about it? No. I'm no more worried about that than anything else. I'm not unconcerned about that. But, you know doesn't seem to be a gigantic problem across the board. I don't know. So, in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke likes to emphasize Jesus' ministry to all the outsiders. I'm not going to read all these, but these are just a, sm- a smattering of texts from Luke which are weirdly out of order, 4, 7, 14, back to 7, I don't know. 
The spirit of, so we've seen this one, right? Jesus says to John, Jesus says he sends, sends word back to John the Baptist and tell him the poor have their gospel preached to them. Right? So John's supposed to think, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. That's exactly what the Messiah is going to do. Um, and then here again, invite the poor. Chapter 7 again. Jesus talks it's about the, the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. We saw that one already. Oh, too far? There we go. Two, still too far? And a button. There we go. Oh, that, I'm, I'm not touching it, I promise. That, what I'm trying to say, what I'm showing is this. is all the way from chapter 4, all the way up through chapter 21 in Luke, and that's pretty much near the end, there are specific texts about the poor in relation to Jesus' ministry. And not just spiritually poor, but also not just socioeconomically poor. And the reason I'm pointing this out is, it spans the whole gamut of Luke's gospel. Just like Luke has a special emphasis on those who are unclean, according to the law. He has a special, like lepers, for instance. Uh, he has a special emphasis on Jesus' ministry uh, with women and women who are supporting Jesus. And it's not that the other gospel writers would be like, I've never heard of this before. But Luke has a special emphasis on it. He has a special emphasis on, again, uh, the poor, um, as I've said. And he has a special emphasis on uh, people who are outside the society, like shepherds and people like that. Again, what you see in the ministry of Jesus is Jesus going outside the bounds of those that we would typically be comfortably and happily drawn to. In other words, the people that can give us back something. And I think thinking about a theology of poverty has to begin with those sort of really personal sort of questions like that. And that is, how do I even think about the relationships I have, not just with others, but how do I even think about relationships in regard to, like, how did Jesus think about relationships? And it clearly wasn't Jesus thinking, you know what? I'm going to go hang out with the people who make me the most comfortable, the people who I have the most in common with, the people who are most like me, uh, the people who sort of live like I do, same interests. I mean, who would he have hung out with? Quite frank. I mean, who? Nobody. And Luke makes that really, really clear. And I think embedded in that message is this implication of us being the same way. And that is not just asking, should I, should I, should I, but thinking, how do I even view other hum- human beings? And am, am I just selective? in the sort of human beings that I spend time with, or want to spend time with. Now, this gets to the big one. Blessed are the poor. You know this, right? Everybody gets in a big sort of to-do with uh, Matthew saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, and Luke saying, blessed are you who are poor. It's going to tell you right up, they mean the same thing. They do. Um, blessed are the poor is the same thing as saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. It is not different. Because in the context of both Gospels, you can see that Matthew doesn't just mean, if you just read the Gospel of Matthew, you can clearly see it doesn't just mean the poor in spirit, but not also the poor. (coughs) Same thing in Luke. Blessed are you who are poor turns out to be not just the people who are socioeconomically poor, but everybody. But here's the question for you. What does this word blessed mean? 
Now, probably everybody, many of you are thinking, it doesn't mean if you're poor, you are blessed. And it probably just doesn't, it probably doesn't mean, you're probably thinking this, I'm not saying I agree or disagree, you're probably thinking, well, it's not just an explicit promise that if you're poor, you will be blessed. Right? Because then, entry into the kingdom just means, I guess if I just don't have a lot of money, I'm in. But what does it even mean? What's this word blessed mean? Now, I'm a fan of lots of translations, but the word happy simply doesn't cut it. It just doesn't. You know why? For the very reason that made you giggle when I said it. Because there's, we only have a couple of uses for the word happy, and it doesn't... Now, we might not know what this word means, blessed, not exactly, or we have our own definitions. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. But we all know what the word happy means when we use it. Right? So the benefit of this word, at least, is we're not sure what it means exactly. But the word happy, we always know what it means. And it doesn't fit what Jesus is saying. Now think about all the Beatitudes. If you just think about them for a moment. Jesus says things like, blessed are the meek, right? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the pure in heart. Um, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are blessed are you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, right? Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and slander you and insult you. Now, the way we typically look at these, I'm telling you, this: if we get a handle on this, we and get a handle on a theology of poverty. And what we see then, it's really a theology of the kingdom of God. And then we're set free to do anything and everything that we can possibly do freely. What does the word blessed mean? Well, the word blessed, quite frankly, means, you know, it means things like favored and accepted confidently before God. But Jesus isn't just making a statement about who is blessed. Think about what Jesus is doing. When was the last time you thought of, like, here's the most, if you, if you, were, if you, use, the, if you use the word, let's, let's use this word, well off. That doesn't, that's not a synonym for blessed, by the way. It's just I'm going to make a point. And I'm going to come in the room and say, you know who's well off in this world? The poor. You know who's well off? People in prison. You know who's well off in this world? People who are oppressed. People who are humiliated. People who are mourning. You know who's really well off and good, good to go? People who just lost a loved one. That's who. You know who's really well off? People who just lost everything they owned in a storm. You know who's really well off? Um, people, you know, people who are fleeing for their lives from a, you know, an oppressive government. Those people are well off. What would you think? What would you hear? How would you think about that? You can answer out loud if you want. What? Opposite. Those are not the well-off people, right? Who are the well-off people? I mean, you don't have to make a list. You already know. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is inviting you. We don't think about the Beatitudes too much. And I'm I'm completely... um, 
want to give credit to my dear friend and colleague, Jonathan Pennington, who wrote the best book ever written on the Sermon on the Mount, called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, Jonathan T. Pennington. I'm just stealing this from him. Um, the, the Beatitudes are not just a promise that if you're poor, this will happen. It is an invitation to you to rethink and re-experience virtually everything you think about what is great, what is good, what is comfortable, what is worthy, and what is worthy of your time, what is, what is, what is awesome, what is impressive. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes... Are they a promise? Yes. But they're not just that. Think about it for a moment. The Beatitudes are Jesus' invitation for us to take our worldview and turn it totally upside down and see that we've been looking at the world completely wrong all along. Because what kind of world is it where the poor are the blessed people? And you see, this is why it doesn't just mean blessed one day in the future if you just gut it out and sort of stick it out and eventually pie in the sky when you die. That's kind of how we look at it. Think about Jesus' kingdom, and it might help. Jesus says in his kingdom, the servants are the greatest. Jesus says in his kingdom, people who are like children are the greatest. People, Jesus says in his kingdom... The, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Then Jesus says weirder stuff than that. And that is, if somebody hits you, turn the other cheek. Um, if somebody asks you to go to mile, go to. Pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. Right? Pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. And then Jesus says the wildest thing of all. He talks about his kingdom and then says, I'm going down to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed by the Romans, and the Jews are going to hand me over. Now, we're, unfortunately, we're so used to that that we just treat the cross as just, well, of course. There is, there is not a less of course ever in the history of the world than Jesus dying on the cross. Because think about it. When was the last time you heard of somebody starting like a new movement? He's the leader, and they all got together and said, the way to make this thing succeed is to get rid of our leader as soon as possible. That's what always happens. But that's, that's Jesus' kingdom. Right? That's, that's the upside-down nature of the kingdom. And that's the upside-down nature of the Beatitudes. Who's blessed? The poor in spirit. Not because all of a sudden they're not the poor in spirit. Why are those who mourn blessed? Not because all of a sudden... Hey, I'm no longer mourning. No. The things that we look at as a sign of weakness, the things that we look at as a sign of, of uh, sort of just being down and not on top, Jesus looks at that and says, those are the blessed people in my kingdom. And so what that does, if we can get a handle on it, is it transforms the way we look, I'm not kidding, at everything. Including... The poor. And how we think about a so-called theology of poverty, which turns out to be really a theology of living the kingdom of God. Where, If we can get a handle on it, and then we start to see things like, oh, you know what? I've been included in this kingdom. And that becomes a, that becomes a, that becomes a really important part of this. i got to skip over that. 
of what I talked about earlier, and that is remembering that we are those who have received sight. We are those who have received hearing. We are those who have received mercy. We are those who have received freedom. We are those who have been set free from the slavery to sin. And that, and that doesn't at all even begin to like spiritualize that idea. In fact, it gives us the same, it gives us like God's own grounds for fighting against those things. Right? It gives us God's own grounds for why we have a theology of poverty and why we help the poor and why we should help the poor. Because we're reminded that rich or poor, if you call Jesus your Savior, you are saved but why? Because of God's mercy to you, a poor sinner. And this is, so this is, this is part of this rewiring, right? In this kingdom where servants are great, and the king is killed. Of course he rises from the dead. But still, when the disciples first heard he's going to rise from the dead, it's not like they were like, oh yeah, that happens all the time. Right? We're like, how did they not know? Why were they so surprised? None of them had ever... You could be told all day long, I'm going to rise from the dead and be like, oh yeah, my uncle did that. (laughs) Nobody... It's so beyond human experience that if he he told them every single day, they would still be shocked. You know why? Because somebody rose from the dead. And, you know, we have this way of thinking people in the first century would believe anything. Well, you know what? They were just as smart as us. Maybe smarter. But they were at least this smart to know that when people were dead, they were dead. And so if it took a while for that to sink in, I think we can understand why. So, right? So their leader is going to be crucified and killed. And that's what's going to start this kingdom that is greater than anything anybody could ever ask, imagine, or think about, or hope for. And we're recipients of that, right? And we're constantly reminded... Do not deny justice to a resident alien or a fatherless child. Remember at the beginning I said poor doesn't just mean socioeconomically poor. Right? So a resident alien is somebody who's not an Israelite who's living inside the boundaries of Israel. That was not a popular person to be in the ancient Near East. That is somebody from outside, from another nation who's sort of, yeah, you didn't really just cross borders and like set up your tent. That didn't happen. And God says, Do not deny justice to a foreigner or an orphan. And do not take a widow's garment of security. You know why? Because you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. So it answers the question, should we be helping the orphans? Should we be helping the poor? Should we be helping people who can't help themselves? The answer is obvious. The answer has become A deafening yes. Right? And then, here's the ultimate one. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you know what Paul's talking about? He's talking about how he had collected all this money to bring to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem church where people were uh, in trouble because of a famine. And he tells the Corinthians, who were relatively well off, some of them, he's like, you know the churches in Macedonia, that means like, the, uh, the, like the Thessalonians, they, have, they were dirt poor. And Paul says they gave more than everybody. 
And this is the context of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's talking about, he's talking about this, he went everywhere he went. He was collecting money from Gentiles to send down to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And they were, in Macedonia anyway, they were like falling over themselves to give, even though they themselves had nothing. And Paul is telling the Corinthians about this. And in chapter 8 he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, I mean, who's richer? Yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And if we can see ourselves, if we can see ourselves as rich in the way that counts, then we are freed up now to what? To understand and to be put in the position where we look at everybody that we see as, as deserving as we are of that. And the thing is, we're not deserving. Right? But we receive it. And so it doesn't matter. It's not a matter of whether the people you're helping, well, if they would just work more, if they would just do this more, if they would just do that more. Am I saying there's no practical considerations? Of course I'm not saying that. But it really sort of wipes away a lot of those things that we throw up as obstacles when we step back and, and we should step back and think, well, I don't know, what all did I do that make me deserving of God's free grace? Did I do a lot for that? Right? Did I... Did I put in a lot of hours for that? Did I, did I look good? Right? Did, I, did, I, did I have the right language? Was I pleasant? Was I grateful? No. And I think that's the things... So all, I'm, all I've done today, you're like, I still feel like we haven't done a, the, a theology of poverty. If you think that, maybe we haven't. But the, the goal is, is the only way to think about a theology of poverty is to think about it in terms of how the Bible talks about it in such a broad way that encompasses virtually anything we could think. And then it comes to its fulfillment when Jesus comes and talks about this upside-down kingdom. But the thing about this upside-down kingdom is it turns out this. It is the only right-side-up thing that there is. Right? It's not just that our worldview is turned on its head. It's turned on its head so that we can see we've been upside down all along. Until we hear the one who comes and says, you know, I've come to preach the gospel to the poor, to release the oppressed, right? Uh, to open the ears of the, of the deaf, to proclaim the year of God's favor. And then once we get a handle on that's the kingdom that we're part, on, part of, and that we ourselves, we ourselves, we're poor and helpless how can we not then have something of a theology of poverty? Anyway, I've gone all the way to the end. I'm sorry I took the whole of the time. I hope it's been helpful for you. If you have questions, and we, we kind of have to end officially, but if you have any questions, I'm happy to st- st- stay back and talk with you. Have a good evening.